All right, so you may or may not know, but for the last couple of years, I have been home educating our 12-year-old son. And so in that time, I've done lots of maths lessons, so maybe that's why they asked me to talk to you about multiplication, because I've had fresh practice in it. And what I've decided in our maths lessons is that by far my favorite uh, mathematical operation is multiplying, and here's why. Because when you add, you're basically just putting two or more things together, and that's not very interesting. And then when you subtract, you just end up with less. And when you divide, you have to share things evenly, which if you're a mum, goes something like this. There's one red sweet for you, one red sweet for you, one red sweet for you. There's one yellow sweet for you, one yellow sweet for you. And the only good thing about that is the ones left over go in the mum pot at the end. But otherwise, dividing is just a headache. But multiplication, if you think about it, I'm like, ooh, there's like a dynamic power in it, isn't there? You feel like it's kind of brimming with possibilities because you can get to exponentially vast numbers quickly. And so I like multiplication. And I've been thinking that God is a great multiplier, isn't he? He is full of dynamic power. And even our kind of multiplication rules, like, you know, if you take something and times it by nothing, it's always nothing. Didn't that fry your brain as a child? It was, it was like, how can that be? But it's the same. And if you take something and you times it by one, it's always just the same number. But it's not like that with God, is it? Because he is not bound by our mathematical rules, is he? Of course he's not. He's God. And so I've been having fun thinking about God's multiplying work in Scripture. And so these are some of the things I've been thinking of. God can multiply a poor widow's oil, very last drop of oil, and multiply it to fill multiple jars with oil. He can take no sight and make it become perfect sight. He can take the five loaves and two fish brought to him in faith and multiply them to feed 5,000 men and all the women and children who were there too. He can turn no wine into an abundance of exquisite wine. He can make a man, an old man with no son, to have offspring beyond counting. He can make empty nets after a whole night's fishing full to bursting point. And he can even multiply no money to pay a tax into a coin in a fish's mouth. Because why not, hey? God's like that. He's like, let's just do this the fun way, shall we, for you. And as I listed these stories, I was kind of trying to find commonalities. I was thinking, what links these things? I kind of like formulas. If you could just tell me, like, this times this times this always equals that, I would do it. I'm like, just tell me the rules and I'll do them. But I couldn't find any. The only common thread that I could find was that God was part of the action. So if you take God and his activity out of those stories, you're left with a starving woman and her son, a blind man, thousands of hungry people, an embarrassed father of the bride, a childless old man, frustrated fishermen, and unpaid tax. Not fun, is it? So what is it that was going on in those stories? Well, the people involved had a sense that God could do the impossible. And as they come to him with their lack, God displays his majestic glory in his care and his love for the people he's made. Because all things are possible for the one who believes. God is the glorious one 
And he will not share his glory with another. It rightfully belongs to him. And so he loves opportunities to put his glory and character on display. As Rich said last Sunday, the best thing for you, for me, for our friends, for everyone you know, for the entire world, is that God is known as the glorious one. And so today, one of the things that I think God wants to enlarge, to multiply, if you will, is our view of him. You could say our faith. I think faith can be one of those Christian words. You know, there's some Christian words you just hear so much, you don't even stop and think, what does that mean? Well, I was like, what does that mean? How, you know, how do we sum that up? And so today, when I'm talking about faith, I mean this trusting relationship with God where we have absolute confidence in who he is and what he says. It's where we see him for who he really is and we take him at his word. And we see from encounters that people have with Jesus in the Gospels that faith is something that can be more or less. In Matthew 8, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and his servant is paralyzed and is suffering. And Jesus says, oh, I'll come with you and heal your servant. And the centurion's like, oh, no, don't worry. Like, I understand how authority works. You've got authority. Just say the word. And it's like, job done. I don't need you to come with me. And it says that Jesus was amazed at his faith. And he said, I haven't found anyone in all of Israel with faith like this. And then later, a few verses later in the chapter, Jesus is asleep in the boat and his disciples wake him up in the middle of a fierce storm. They think they're about to drown. And Jesus says, you have little faith. Why were you afraid? And then we read in Mark 6 how Jesus is kind of back in his hometown. And the people around, they were amazed at his teaching. They could see that he was wise and that he could perform miracles. But they were so caught up in knowing him in his humanity as Mary's son, as the carpenter. Like maybe he'd even made their table or their chairs. Or as like the brother of all these siblings who were very ordinary. That he couldn't do a lot there. It says, oh, he could, he could only heal a few people. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So we see that faith, this confident trust in who God is and what he says, it can be more, it can be less, and it can res- impact Jesus' response, his multiplying potential. It's interesting to me that the Roman centurion had great confidence in who Jesus was and what he could do. Whereas those who'd grown up around him, or who were with him day in, day out, they doubted. I think there's a warning for us in that, isn't there? Not to get so familiar and comfortable with Jesus that we miss who he is and therefore forget what he can do. You see, our level of faith is inseparably linked to who we believe God to be. I know my faith levels, my kind of daily experience of confidence in in God, it rises and falls. And I imagine that's the same for you. Because our human hearts, they're prone to wander. They seek other things to worship and to put our confidence and trust in. We have this really frustrating natural tendency to shrink and lower God to what we've experienced or what we can get our heads around, or even to how we feel on any given day. We kind of stick these labels on him and we box him in. 
And then we put our view of the world onto him rather than letting who he, sh- who he is shape how we see the things of the world. The uncomfortable truth is that our sinful nature rejects and distorts God and it grieves his heart and it limits what he can do in and through his people. This time last year, I thought we were about to grow as a family through adoption and I was full of excitement and anticipation and things didn't go as we'd expected or hoped or prayed. And to be honest, it was one of the most traumatic, stressful, painful, sad, and confusing seasons that I've ever walked through. And it did affect my relationship with my Father in heaven. I let my circumstances and my feelings alter my view of God. And the result was that I found myself more discouraged, more easily overwhelmed, more fed up and frustrated than usual. It didn't do me good shrinking God And so everything that I'm saying to you today, like I'm saying it to myself as well because I've needed to hear it too. I mentioned what had been going on to a couple of friends at Life Group a little while back and they prayed for me. And then the next day, don't you love how that happens? Like you tell someone, you pray, and then the next day um, I had some time to fill in the new forest and I was just spending time with God and I was trying to figure out a problem. And I felt prompted again to look at something I'd come across in a Jen Wilkin Bible study. And it was this list of 32 attributes of who God is. And we've got some copies down here if you'd like to take one home with you. Um, And as I read them through, it was like finding a well in the desert. I was reminded that God is attentive. He hears and responds to the needs of his children. He's faithful in keeping his promises. He's generous. He gives what is best and beyond what is deserved. He's good. He's incapable of doing harm. He's holy, perfect, pure, and without sin. He's fair. He's infinite. There's no limit to his person or his power. And he's loving. He feels and displays infinite, unconditional affection towards his children, towards you, and towards me. And his love for us doesn't depend on our worth, our response, or our merit. He's patient with us, he's wise, he can't choose wrongly, and he's worthy, he deserves all glory, honor, and praise. That is our God. Isn't he amazing? And that's who he was 2,000 years ago. It's who he was yesterday. It's who he is now. It's who he has been and will be for all eternity. Isn't that good news for us? Yeah. And so as I read those characteristics of God and I kind of remembered afresh who he really is, multiplication set to work in me. The result was first repentance, adoration, and delight. In the space of a few minutes, faith multiplied exponentially. And I felt that wonderful sense of drawing close to God as he drew close to me. I think when we see him as he really is, not the God we make him out to be, he is so attractive, so winsome that we can't help but come to him and be close to him. We want it. We want to draw near to him. And then when we look back at our circumstances around us, we see them differently, don't they? You know, have you ever done that where you just 
Look up, remind yourself who God is, then look back and it's changed. Even though the specifics haven't changed, how you see it and what feels possible has changed. In Hebrews 11, it's kind of the great chapter of faith in Scripture, and it just recounts story after story of what God does when very ordinary people like us put our trust in God. And right after that um, chapter, the next verse, it says, Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To fix our eyes on him. We need to keep looking at him. That's an active thing. We need to choose to do it. It's like a staring contest. I was thinking, God's never going to blink first, is he, in that one? So you'll always lose, but you could try. Just fix your gaze upon him. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told what to do with this free gift of faith. We're encouraged to become established in it. Things that are established look like they've been there a while. They look like they've unpacked and put down roots and are staying put. We're told to stand firm in it, to use it as a shield to defend ourselves against the attacks that will come from the enemy. We're told that it will be tested, so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at these knocks that come in life. They test our faith to develop perseverance in us. And we're exhorted to build ourselves up into it and to contend to it, to fight for it, to protect it, to not let it be altered or corrupted. So there's work for us to do here. It's not a passive sport. And so what I want to leave you with is this. Our God is a big and amazing God, and he wants his glory to be displayed, to be multiplied throughout the earth. When we have great confidence in and experience of his kindness, his compassion and tenderness, his justice, his faithfulness, his power, his ability to provide, to help, to supply, to intervene, well, anything could happen. That faith relationship creates an environment where God can exponentially multiply what is lacking into his people and his world. He loves faith, and he loves to respond to it. God can and wants to do incredible things. So whatever the circumstance we find ourselves or the people around us in, what we and they need more than anything else is God. Not the God our sinful nature distorts and shrinks him to be. Let's not do us or those around us a disservice and short sell God to them. What we need is for us and them to experience and to show the world this glorious, majestic, all-powerful, all-seeing, attentive, holy, worthy God. That is the God we love. That is the real God. And so that's my encouragement for us today. Let's lift our eyes to God, stripped of all the rubbish that we put on him. Let's lift our eyes and see him as he is, as who he says in his word he is. Shall we worship him together?